Hey, my name is Matt Ellison. I'm so glad you guys are here to join us for worship. If this is your first time, you've joined us the last couple of weeks. I'd love the opportunity to be able to reach out and meet you. And I just invite you to email me at matt at stonebridgemarietta.org. And you shoot me a one-line email. And I'll look forward to meeting you and to sharing a little bit more with you. On Sundays and every Sunday, it is our desire that this service, that our Sunday services would be an opportunity for all of us to be able to connect to God, it doesn't matter how long you've been walking with God or how long you've been coming to Stonebridge, that we desire for our students, children, the adults to have an opportunity to connect with God. And so that is our desire for this morning as well. I wanted to go ahead and thank you guys for those that I've spoken to the last couple of weeks for sharing how you guys have been able to stay connected with uh, those in our church through the small groups, the micro groups, and through just calling each other. Um, in the relationships in the church. It's been really encouraging to see how we've all been able to stay connected the last couple of weeks. Um, and I wanted to give you guys a little bit of an update, some things that I've been working on with small groups. Um, and wanted to remind you of a couple of things that we talked about a couple of weeks ago that seemed like they are circling back around and extremely important still. And that is that discipleship happens in community. We need each other as sources of encouragement, of truth, and support in this time. And so we believe that our small groups are the best vehicle that we have uh, to be able to facilitate discipleship. And so we need each other now more than ever before. And I believe that I mean that, and I believe that more than a month ago, the first time I did say that. Um, and so we want this time for all of us to look back at this time as, an, as a time that we could say, I was thriving in my relationships with each other, with those relationships in my church. And I was also thriving in my relationship with Christ. And so we have a few new small groups that we've been working on that we want to be able to share with you. These will be uh, groups that will be online through Zoom. And uh, you can go ahead and see in the video description below a list of these small groups. Uh, but I wanted to share with you these five small groups really fast. First one will be a group that I'm leading that will be a prayer small group. That'll be uh, focusing on praying for and praying with our overseas families that are from Stonebridge that are serving overseas. Our second group will be led by Kay O'Neill, and she is going to be facilitating a women's discipleship uh, group that'll be, that'll be meeting on Wednesday nights. And it'll focus on fellowship, on discussing the sermon, and on praying together. The third group will be led by Adam Suter, and it is called a simple prayer group. And the, the focus of it will really be on praying for a specific country and people group for a short period of time each week. The fourth group is going to be led by Danny Sean. He is starting another men's discipleship group that is going to be taking place on Wednesday mornings. And right now they are currently reading and studying through Philippians. And the final group will be led by Adam Suter, Mark Kelly, and myself. And we're going to be focusing on microgroups as a disciple-making tool. And we're going to be looking at some ideas around how we can use microgroups to be able to help further disciple-making in our church and in our community. And we're also going to have breakout times for these groups um, each week. And so if you have any questions on those five new groups, or if one of those piqued your interest, go ahead and email me. 
And I'd love to pair you up with the leader for those new small groups, matt at stonebridgemarietta.org. Or you can also request to join on the website on the link in the video description below. That'll take you to a list of all of our new small groups and all of our current open small groups as well. And so you may be asking, don't we already have small groups in our church? And the answer is yes, we do. And for a large portion of our church, these small groups function as uh, places where um, discipleship is taking place, where encouragement, where truth is being spoken, and support is given and received. Uh, But we want everyone in our church to have the opportunity to have a place they can say is their place, their group, their people that are walking alongside them, that are praying with them, and that are speaking truth into their lives. And so uh, that really fuels this just desire that I've had for us to keep creating more opportunities for us to have uh, more small groups and places of discipleship for our church. And so as we seek to be conformed into the image of Christ, as we seek to look more like him, to act more like him, um, we're going to need each other. This iron sharpens iron. We're going to need each other continue moving forward into discipleship and into that that we get to become the people that God has called us to be. And so I'm excited for where these new small groups are going to take us in this time so that it will be a time where we can truly thrive in connection and relationship with each other and also with relationship with Christ. And so as we go into worship, let's go ahead and take a couple of minutes to pray as we open up this service. Heavenly Father, we love you. We love this opportunity, Lord, that we have to be able to gather, to be able to worship together, to sing your praises and to declare your truths. Lord, we just ask that you would be preparing our hearts, God, that we would be in a place where we could be able to focus on you, that our minds would be stilled, and that we may be able to look at this passage and this sermon and to be able to ask tough questions in our own heart. And God, that you would be doing the work of turning us more into the image of Christ, Lord, that you would be continually transforming our lives. So we give you this morning, we give you this time, we thank you that you come and you meet with us. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Hey, I'm David. I'm the pastor here at Stonebridge, and we are glad that you guys are with us. This will be the time when we take up our offering. Uh, the, the ways that you can give will be there on the screen, and we want to encourage you to go ahead and do that right now uh, whenever you're watching this. And I do want to thank you all so much for how generous you've been. I went back and I looked and just did a little year-over-year comparison for the, the weeks that we've not been able to meet, 2019 versus 2020, the last five weeks. And in, in 2019, during those, the, the five weeks, kind of middle of March to middle of April, those five Sundays, we had $102,000 given, which is a lot of money. But those same five weeks in 2020, when we've been doing this virtual deal, we've had $156,000 given, which is phenomenal. And an additional $13,000 given straight to our benevolence fund. So thank y'all so much for your generosity and your faithfulness. We have begun this week to have some, a few pulls on that benevolence fund. So it's great to have 
uh, some extra money in there. We were able to help a family from uh, Marietta City Schools. We were able to help a family in our church, and I anticipate that the needs will continue to increase, and we're thankful again for the way you guys have stepped in uh, to help meet those needs. So I'm going to say a prayer. I want to encourage you guys to pray with me. God, we do confess and we acknowledge again in the midst of all of the uncertainty and all of the kind of the, the chaos of um, these past few weeks and what looks like to be maybe at least the next couple of weeks that you're our rock, that you're, sta- you're, you're stable, you're firm, you're consistent, you're trustworthy, that you're strong enough to hold up under the full weight of our lives. And so as we enter into worship, we do so acknowledging that, putting all of our faith, all of our trust, all of our hope upon you. Giving is an expression of that, particularly, again, in times of uncertainty, choosing to part with money. And we don't know if we're going to get laid off. We don't know what the stock market's going to do. Choosing to give, is, that's a, it's an act of faith. And I'm thankful for the, the faithfulness of our congregation in these days. And ultimately, God, we're most thankful to you for the way that you take care of us and the way that you provide for us. We do pray for those who've been laid off. And we pray that you would take care of them. I pray that you would calm their hearts even now, that peace would fill their hearts. They'd have a deep sense of conviction that you've got them. God, we pray for those who are making difficult decisions on behalf of other people and their companies, that you would lead them and guide them, that they would know what faithfulness looks like in these moments. God, for those organizations that got money this week from the PPP deal, I pray they would know how to use it. And we'll just take that as provision from you and you'd show us how to use that in the best ways. And for those who maybe were looking for it and didn't get it, God, I pray that they would know that uh, you've got lots of sources, lots of means, and we pray that you would provide for them as well. God, as we turn our hearts to you fully in worship, our desire is to engage. We want to recognize that you're the living God, that you're not far off and distant, that you're not disengaged and disinterested, but your desire is to meet with us at all times and in all places. You're just waiting on us to slow down enough to turn our hearts towards you. And so that's what we want to do here in these moments. It's going to take just maybe 15 or 20 seconds of silence. I want to ask you just in your own, in your home, wherever you're watching this, to intentionally kind of dial down, connect in with Jesus. From that place of connection, I want to worship you in spirit and in truth, giving you all of the glory and the honor that you deserve. Amen. As we start, um, I would encourage you, wherever you are, if you can, to stand with us and engage. Um, wherever you are with the Lord, it's a sanctuary, just like this room. So we hope you can do that.
things are possible when there's no broken body you can raise no soul that you can't save all things are possible the darkest night you can light it up you
All right, we're going to jump back into Revelation today. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn to Revelation 17. Uh, one announcement, uh, you may be aware that uh, we are looking for a new uh, elementary school leader, Michelle Suter, who's been working with us for the last year. That was an interim role for her, and she's done a fantastic job. She'll be transitioning off of our staff at the end of June, and so we're looking for somebody who can step into that role. Uh, just a couple of things. One... It, it, it is a part-time role, but it's incredibly significant. It's pastoring our elementary school children. That stage and phase of life is really important uh, for, for the spiritual formation and foundation for people uh, for the rest of their lives. And so we're looking for someone uh, who, who is a shepherd, kind of a shepherd teacher, really. The shepherd, I think, is a, that's a big piece for us. And, and the two things I'm asking for you to do, one is I want you to pray. I want you to pray about that the, that the Lord would raise up. We believe he called Michelle and then he's called her out. So he's going to call somebody else in. Um, and you ask God to do that. And I would encourage you to be doing that diligently. But internally, uh, if you're just wondering, is this me? I want you to pray. And then I want you to reach out to Katie. Just reach out. It, it, it's not a commitment. You're just exploring. And the kingdom obedience is success. So just that one step of saying, I don't know if this is me. Like, I don't know if I can teach or I don't know what I think about kids or I don't know if I want to work. Whatever that is, just take the step of reaching out to Katie and trust that the Lord 
will direct you to us in terms of knowing, is this the right thing? And the second thing I want you to do is if someone comes to your mind and you think they'd be a good fit, I want you to reach out to them. Oh, there's someone on our staff, and, and one of the key pieces for this person moving into the role that they're currently in was people saying, hey, I think you'd be a good fit for this. It, he, th- this person was wrestling with some things in their heart in terms of a particular role, and having the body speak was very uh, influential in his kind of discerning a calling. And so I want to encourage you to do that. We believe God speaks to the body through the body. And so if you think, ah, this person, that they're on my mind and they're on my heart, and I, even it doesn't matter if you don't see how it can work out circumstantially. That's not your job. Your job is just to be faithful to share what the Lord's putting in your heart. And so if you're sensing that for someone else, please just, just let them know. Say, hey, I was thinking about you. I was praying about this. And I'm not telling you that it's your job. I'm just saying you came to mind, and I would encourage you Uh, to reach out to Katie or at a minimum to pray about reaching out to her. So those two things, if you're sensing any level of stirring, please reach out. You don't have to have the whole thing figured out. Obedience is success. God speaks to the body through the body. So if there's someone that you think would be a good fit, particularly if that person is kind of coming to mind as you're praying, please reach out to that person and tell them what you're thinking and what you're sensing. You never know if that's the thing that they're waiting on to kind of push them forward to say yes. Okay, Revelation 17. Before we do this, let me say this. Three lenses that we need to use when we're looking at Revelation. We need uh, trifocals. So uh, we need to look at what did this mean? So that's kind of a past tense. What did this mean to the original audience? That's our firm foundation. We've learned some things uh, over the years about first century Judaism We've learned some things over the years about early, uh, the, the life of early Christians. And so we can be pretty confident when we read through the New Testament. Hey, this is probably what these guys heard. And that's our firm foundation and that's where we want to start. It, it's not gonna, the Bible is not going to mean something to us that it couldn't have meant to the original audience. So that's the first lens. And we use that lens for everything that we read, Genesis through Revelation. Then the second lens is what does it mean to us? So this, this truth that was spoken to the original audience, how do we apply that in 2020 in Marietta? And that, that what does it mean to us? That, that's situational. So that's going to look different based on the reader, the time, the place, the circumstances of the person reading it. What it means to us looks different in 2020 Marietta than it does in 2020 Iraq. And what it lo- means to us in 2020 Marietta looks different than it meant in 1820 Marietta and what it's going to mean in 2120 Marietta. The the circumstances help shape that. There's there's more fluidity there. It's situational. So we've got what does it mean and what does it mean to us? And again, that's Genesis through Revelation. But with Revelation in particular, and this makes it uh, somewhat unique among the New Testament books, because it's also a prophecy, we have to say, what is this saying about the future? That's the third lens. So the first lens is the past. What did it mean to the original audience? Second lens is the present. What is this saying to us? And the third lens is the future. Revelation says this is a prophecy. It's speaking about events leading up to Jesus' return in the end of this age and the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And so we have to use that lens. And almost by definition, that's the murkiest one. We can't see tomorrow. We can't see the next five minutes. We don't have any idea. We can't see into the future. 
And Revelation, on top of that, Revelation uses highly symbolic language. And so that's the murkiest thing to try to say, what does this mean for the future? And what is my responsibility? Unfortunately, that's where most people live when it comes to Revelation, is they want to major in that third lens. We want to speculate about what 666 means or what the mark of the beast is or what this plague of locusts that look like horses. And, and what that winds up doing is it causes us, one, to, we project Revelation so far into the future, it doesn't impact our lives at all. And then we, we're left with no, there's no hooks. There's nothing that we are responsible for. There, there's, there's no places of obedience for us because we've projected it so far into the future and then it just becomes this kind of speculative contest who can come up with the greatest theory on what this the weirdness of revelation means and we don't want to do that we want to have we want to recognize it is a prophecy and there's a future element and we want to try to be diligent and discerning and saying god what would you say to us about the future through this book and we also want to recognize that's going to be the hardest thing for us to nail down it really is it's going to be very difficult for us again because we can't see into the future and because revelation uses highly symbolic language that's open to a wide variety of interpretations so as we get into chapter 17 remember those three lenses it's important for all of revelation the past what it mean to the first audience present what's it mean to us and then that future one as well what is this saying about the events leading up to Jesus's return so uh, we mentioned a couple of weeks ago chapter 15 signals a new it's a new scene it's a new series of events in Revelation in chapter 15 and 16 are a unit together and they focus on the bowls of God's wrath God's wrath is his righteous anger poured out towards on sin and we said that this wrath is motivated out of God's holiness and out of his justice. So using that three lens grid that we just talked about. So the original audience, those seven churches, small group of Christians who are in the big pond of the Roman Empire. And they're swimming upstream. They're going against current. The Roman Empire is saying, hey, we're, we're, we're God and we need you to worship us and these Christians are saying, no, we disagree and we're not going to. And there's creating, they're, they're being squeezed because of it. They read uh, about these bowls of God's wrath. They read Rome, excuse me, Revelation 15 and 16. And what they're going to think is, oh, this is good news for us. I can take comfort in this that at just the right time, God in his holiness and in his justice is going to vindicate us because we've been faithful to him. And he's going to judge those who've been resistant to him and who have persecuted us because of our faithfulness for us 2020 we said what this what revelation 15 and 16 says to us is right now we're not living in a time of wrath we're living in a time of patience god does not desire anyone to perish and so he's holding back his wrath again think of those bowls as he's collecting his wrath in these bowls he's not currently pouring it out on us and he's doing that not because he's not holy or not because he's not just, but because he's loving and he's gracious and he wants everyone to have an opportunity to repent and to put their faith and their trust in Jesus. But that patience will be exhausted at some point. That's what Revelation 15 and 16 says. God's patience does have a limit. There's an end. And there will come a time where we're going to reap what we've sown. And those people who have sown resistance and rejection of God and of the gospel and of Jesus and of grace are going to reap devastating consequences. 
that future lens, that's the murkiest one. That's the one everybody wants to talk about, but it's the murkiest one. Revelation 15 and 16, when I read it, it just, it tells me that in the, in the final, the final acts of God, which is what Revelation 15 and 16 are, I think, if you're thinking future, the final acts of God before Jesus comes back and establishes the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven is to cleanse the world. And part of that is judging all of those who've been hostile and resistant to him. So try to keep those three lenses in mind as we read the train wreck of a chapter that is Revelation 17. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, those are the seven bowls of wrath, came to me and said, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters, whether the kings of the earth committed adultery and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Then the angel said to me, why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman or the beast that she rides, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast, which you saw, once was, now is not, and yet will come up out of the abyss and go to its destruction. The inhabitants of the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world, will be astonished when they see the beast, because it once was, now is not, and yet will come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. The seven heads are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has, yet, has not yet come. But when he does come, he must remain for only a little while. The beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. They will wage war against the lamb, but the lamb will triumph over them because he's Lord of lords and king of kings, and with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. Then the angel said to me, The waters you saw where the prostitute sits are people, multi multitudes, nations, and languages. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to hand over to the beast their royal authority until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. So that's wonderful. Um, John sees a vision, two things. He sees a woman and he sees a beast. We'll look at each one uh, separately. Just for the sake of broader context, Revelation 17, 18, and about the first half of Revelation 19, though there, it's an explanation or uh, it's greater detail about the sixth and the seventh bowl. So Revelation 16, seven bowls of God's wrath, the sixth bowl is, is the Battle of Armageddon, 
when the dragon, the beast, and the false prophets gather up all of their followers and they go to make war against Jesus and his followers. Well, that's mentioned briefly in chapter 17. We mentioned that briefly or read that briefly. It's explained in more detail in chapter 19. The seventh bowl talks about the destruction of Babylon, the great city, in chapter 17 and 18, give more detail. So that's really what's going on. If you're trying to sequence these things, chapter 17, 18, and again, about half of chapter 19, really focus on the sixth and the seventh bowl. So a woman and a dragon. The woman's easy. She has several names, and she's described in a pretty... A specific way. She's called the great prostitute. She's called the mother of prostitutes and all of the abominations. She's also called the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. She has several characteristics that uh, describe her. One is she's a, she's a, a woman of influence. She has great influence. She sits on these waters. These waters are the multitudes, nations, and peoples of the earth. She has, her influence is, is widespread. And she's influential with the powerful. The kings of the earth come to her, commit adultery with her. So this woman that is a city, she's not an individual. It says she's the great city. So this woman, this city is an influential city. Also a very wealthy city. Uh, purple and scarlet, those, are, uh, those, those clothes would be really expensive. The jewelry she's wearing is really expensive. She, even the cup that she has in her hand is gold. So influential city, wealthy city immoral city. So the word prostitute and the word adultery in the Old Testament, those words are both literal and metaphorical. So they refer both to sexual behavior and to spiritual unfaithfulness. This woman is both of those things. She's both immoral in terms of her behavior and she's unfaithful in terms of not being true to the Lord. And she actually leads or lures or seduces others away from Jesus as well. And then finally, you can see that she's also a persecutor of the church. She's not content to just lure people away from Jesus. She actually persecutes those who attempt to remain faithful to him. She's drunk on. So using those three lenses, what would the first audience have heard? What does it mean to us? And then what does it say about the future? Who is this woman? Who's the great prostitute? Who's the great city that influences uh, all of these kings and all of these nations of the earth. So the first audience, what they would have heard, no doubt, Rome, 100%. It's the only city in their world at the time that fits the description. And then we also see this additional information that she rides on this dragon with seven heads, and those seven heads are seven hills. And Rome was called the city of seven hills because it was built on seven hills. So Rome is, that's what they would have heard. This woman, this great prostitute, Babylon the Great, that is the city of Rome. What about for us? Rome is no longer, doesn't fit the bill for us anymore. When I think about us, I think about uh, the, the, the phrase the world, that the New Testament, New Testament language. When the New Testament talks about the world, I see the same characteristics that we see listed here uh, for Rome, for the first audience, Babylon um, being the, the metaphor for that. So it's, it's the system of, of behavior that's based on wealth and it's based on power and it's based on immorality that seduces people away from Jesus and makes life difficult for people who desire to be faithful to him. And when I think about the future, now this is the murkiest one, so I don't know. 
But when I think about what is this saying about, you know, the, the, the last uh, moments before Jesus' return or the last years before Jesus' return, I don't know. It seems to me that it's either another city that exercises the same influence that Rome and Babylon did, or maybe it's just speaking in general to the world system as more and more people um, turn away from the Lord. This is kind of the result of what happens uh, to the world, I think. But again, that's the future, and so that's murky. Don't hold me to it. The things that I think are, are pretty clear is it's Rome in the past, and for us, I would again say it's, just, it's what the New Testament calls the world. So we have this prostitute, Rome. And when I say Rome, don't think necessarily about a place on a map. That's okay. I want you to think more about the, the culture, kind of the, the values, the behavior, kind of the vibe of a place. Like if I were to say New York City, what's in most of your mind is not the state of New York with a dot. There's some things that come to your mind. Maybe you think about wealth, you know, financial capital of the world. Maybe you think about um, tons of people or people being really busy. Maybe you think about people being rude. I don't know. Or if I say Los Angeles, what, what comes to your mind? Again, most of you don't think about this city in, uh, in a particular place in California. You may think it's laid back. Maybe you think something about maybe being superficial because Hollywood's connected to it. I don't know. But when I say Rome, don't just think about a place on a map. Think more about kind of what, what this city represents. And I think that helps with the rest of what we see in Revelation 17 when the beast and all of these other kings turn on the prostitute. If you think about that Rome, the city, again, more as kind of the culture and the values and the behavior of a people, kind of what they're putting out. Think about this, this, uh, this goblet that she's holding in her hand, this this golden cup that she's holding, and, and all of these guys are coming to her, all these other nations are coming to her to drink from what she has to offer. What she has, on the outside, it looks good, it's a golden cup, but actually what it is, it's detestable things, it's filth, it's, it's her own immorality. So you can, so just kind of hold that in mind. Don't think necessarily literal city, particularly when you're thinking about where we live now. If you're trying to figure out what city is Babylon, not helpful. Think instead now, think more about kind of, again, that, the, the, the culture of wealth, the culture of power, the culture of privilege and luxury, the culture of immorality that tends to seduce people away from Jesus and makes it difficult for those who want to follow him. So that's the woman, the beast. So the beast in Revelation 17, the scarlet beast, is the same beast that we saw in Revelation 13, the beast out of the sea. They both have seven heads, they both have ten horns. Remember, those numbers are symbolic. So seven heads speaks to authority. Ten horns speaks to power. And the beast has a ton of both. Both have blasphemous names written on them. Um, both derive their power from Satan. The dragon in chapter 13 is on the edge of the sea, waiting on kind of calling this beast out of the sea. Remember the dragon's red, and now this beast we see in chapter 17 is scarlet, kind of a derivative of red. So the power and the authority which this beast has, and he has a lot of both, is derived from Satan. We see he's a deliberate parody of Jesus. He once was. Jesus once walked the earth. He now is not. Jesus is not on the earth anymore. He's seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. But he's coming again. Jesus is returning to the earth in the future. 
So that, that the beast is, is a deliberate parody of the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, Jesus. So same one, Revelation 17 beast, Revelation 13 beast out of sea, they're the same. And everything would be okay to me if the chapter just stopped there. But then the angel says, let me explain this to you, and he just makes it worse. The explanation to me doesn't help at all. It just adds to the confusion. So he says the seven heads are seven hills. We just talked about that. That would make the first audience go, that's Rome 100%. But then he also says the seven heads are seven kings. And that's kind of when the wheels come off. There's no uh, consensus on what those seven heads and what the seven kings are. So you'll see on your screen a couple of options, the two dominant ones. Seven kings refer to seven kingdoms. Every kingdom is led by a king. So seven kings refers to seven empires. There's five in the past. And if you're thinking through the perspective of the people of God, it would be Egypt, Assyria. You'll read in the Old Testament, all four of those empires at different points were controlling Israel, were controlling the Jewish people. Then the fifth is Greek, is Greece. We don't see them in the Old Testament there. That's the time called the intertestamental period between Malachi and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So in the, the 400 years or whatever in between Old Testament and New Testament, that was when the Greeks um, ran the show. So those are the five that have passed. The one that is is obviously the Roman Empire. That's the empire that is currently um, uh, in power when John is writing and when these seven congregations are listening. And the one... That is to come, nobody knows. And then the eighth one, they would say, is the, the kingdom of the Antichrist. Side note, if you're looking for Antichrist in Revelation, you're not going to find it. That word doesn't appear in Revelation. You've got to read Revelation in conjunction with some other passages and some other books, which is totally fine. But you're not going to find that, the idea of the Antichrist specifically mentioned in Revelation. So anyway, that, that's, that's one option. It's empires. Five that have passed. The one that is, it's a Roman Empire. And then the two in the future. One, nobody knows, whatever the seventh one is. And the eighth, the Empire of the Antichrist. The other option is to see those kings as kings. To see them as individuals who are uh, all part of the same empire, a succession of kings. And you'll see on the screen you got options there too. You can basically make it whatever you want because you can start wherever you want to start. You can start with Julius Caesar. He was the first, but he wasn't really the first Caesar Augustus was the first. So you can start with him and then you can count five up and say, those are the, guy, the five in the past. But then you skip some of the guys who were minor if you want to. And then you've got the one who is, which depending on how you date Revelation, it could be Nero, it could be Domitian, it could be someone else. Then you've got one who's going to reign for a short time and you've got options there as well. And the eighth one they would say also is the Antichrist to come in the future. So you can probably tell by my tone of voice, I don't necessarily love either of those options. I don't see how it's helpful. So again, using our grid, past, present, future. What would the first audience have heard? I think what they would have heard, without a doubt, these seven kings are seven actual kings. They're living under the Roman Empire. I, I believe uh, Revelation was written in the time of Domitian. They would have said, he's the king who is, and it doesn't really matter who the five previous ones were. They just know this is who is. And what they would have heard, I think, is, hey, the time is growing. Uh, it's coming near for God to fix all of this. Seven kings, well, five of them are already in the past. 
And so there's one who is, I'm currently living under this guy. The seventh guy's just got a really short reign. And the eighth one, whatever that means, the beast is that king. But we already read the beast is coming out of the abyss just to go to his destruction. And so to me, if I'm one of those seven churches and I'm being squeezed by the Roman Empire, I take a lot of, I don't know the names of the seven kings. I think, well, most of, the, most of, it's, most of this is already in the past. I'm living under one of these kings currently. There's going to be another guy, but his reign's going to be short. And then this eighth one that is the beast, is, it's coming just to go to its destruction. For us, what does it mean for us where we live? I would say, those, I would take those numbers symbolically, seven and ten. They're highly symbolic numbers. And I would use them through the, or look at them through the lens of power political and military power. That's what the beast represents. Remember, the beast is the Roman government. It's, it's the Roman government deifying itself, saying, hey, I'm divine, worship me. And then persecuting the Christians because they wouldn't worship. The persecution was, uh, it was secondary. What was primary was the government saying, hey, we're, we're equal to God. And then the, when the Christians resisted, that's when they were persecuted. They weren't persecuted necessarily because they were Christians. They were persecuted because they refused to worship the emperor. And so for us, I think being aware of the seductive power of power, military power, and politics, which is difficult when you live where we live. We're, they say, what, we're the last superpower on the face of the earth. Our country, we've had both of those things, political and military power, for a really long time. And for most of us, we don't have any concept of what it's like to be the other guy. We've always been, everywhere we go, we're the biggest guy. We've got the most guns. We've got the most money. We've got the most power. So everywhere we go, that, that's kind of a part of who we are. It's kind of what we carry. And if you think about that idea of the prostitute riding on the beast, you can think about this culture, this cultural, culture of indulgence and this culture of immorality that's able to flourish because of the political and the military power that's underneath it. So you can think again, if you're maybe uh, in this first audience, in the first century, you've got the Roman army, which is fierce. And so because of the ferocity and the cruelty of the Roman army, this city, Rome, is able to prosper. And people are drawn to the things that this city offers. But it's all done, again, kind of under this umbrella of the beast. So for us, where we live, I'm not saying that the United States of America is the beast at all. What I'm saying is we need to be aware of the temptations around political and military power. That's, to me, what the horns and what the heads represent. Horns, power, heads, authority. And we need to be careful because we're the haves right now. And honestly, I think we would all say I'd rather be a have than a have not. But there are temptations that come with being a have. And that's where we live. And so I think what Revelation 17 would say to us is we need to be careful. We don't want to unintentionally align ourselves with this prostitute or with this beast. Both of them are going down. Both of them are enemies of God. And we don't want to unintentionally align ourselves with them. We want to be diligent and discerning around all of those issues of wealth and power and luxury and uh, prestige, for lack of a better word. The ten horns, super confusing. 
Ten horns are also ten kings. I think if you're the first audience and you hear that, what you're thinking, it's these, uh, you know, when, when the Roman army would invade and take over certain areas, they would allow a guy to still be kind of a pseudo ruler. He still had some power, but he wasn't a, a full king. He was under the Roman umbrella. And eventually those guys were some of the ones that rebelled against Roman authority. So I think that's what they would have heard. I don't know if you've gotten into any conspiracy theories, new world order, all of that jazz. This is where it comes from. Those 10, the confederation of 10 European powers or whatever, they're going to align with the Antichrist at the end. There's your passage that you can hang your hat on. Again, for me, I would just wrap all of the seven and the 10 together under authority and power and say for us, it's a warning to be aware and to be careful. And then thinking about the future, it's a huge, I don't know. I don't have a clue what this thing looks like in the future. Is it some future kingdom? I don't know. Is it, again, speaking more to a world system? I don't know. We'll know when we get there, if, we get, if we're the ones who are alive when it happens. I think we'll recognize it in the moment. So that, to me, that's, that's Revelation 17. We'll circle back to it again next week to a degree because 18 tags on to 17. You saw the, the Battle of Armageddon was mentioned briefly here in chapter 17 where Jesus, he wins. He and his guys win. It's just almost a matter of fact. You don't get much detail. You also see the, the turning of the beast and the, the horns on the prostitute. Like, what does that look like? Again, if you think about those things as systems, you've got this kind of political military system, this governmental system, and on top of that you have this cultural system and they're all wicked and wicked guys don't make great partners and at some point the house is divided and devours itself and the thing that's stronger, which is the beast, devours the thing that's weaker, which is that prostitute. So for us, just wrapping up a couple of things, I was thinking about mammon in particular, the wealth of the prostitute. That, to me, is the root of her uh, power and of her allure. She has influence because she's wealthy. And I think about all of the warnings in the New Testament in particular about wealth. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Not money, but the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. You can't serve two masters. And out of everything Jesus could have picked to illustrate that point, you can't serve two masters, what he picks is money. You can't serve money and God at the same time. You have to choose. Now think about the circumstances in which we're living now. Massive economic uncertainty. 22 million people filing for unemployment in the last uh, four weeks alone. Some of you maybe are, have, have been laid off or that's a concern for you. We've got the stock market. You get whiplash trying to follow that from day to day. Times of massive economic uncertainty, I still think mammon is whispering, money is whispering to us, attempting to, to allure us, attempting to seduce us. Uh, in, the, in the Old Testament times, prostitutes were, they were out in public during the day. Remember, there's no street lights at night. They're out during the day and they're advertising. They wear certain clothes so you would know who they are. In, in Roman times, they said they actually wore their names on a headband. I don't know why. I guess so you, I don't know why, but they did. They were advertising. They're actively seeking to entice people to come to them. And I think of money in the same way, actively seeking to seduce us to worship it. 
And by worship, I don't mean bow down. By worship, I mean place our faith and our trust in. It's a heart issue for us. Again, it's not about whether you have an idol to a dollar sign. It's whether or not you're tempted and I'm tempted. And the answer is we're all tempted. So it's whether or not we've given in to the temptation to place some of our trust in money. Jesus says in Matthew 6, it's a great passage if you want to read it this week. He says, don't worry about your stuff. Don't worry about what you're going to eat and don't worry about what you're going to wear. Why? Because you have a father in heaven who's good and he knows what you need and he's going to take care of you. And what money says is, hey, you don't need to worry if you have enough of me. I'll take care of you and then you don't have to wonder about whether your father's going to do it or not. That's what money does. It's very similar to what Satan said to Eve in the garden when he attempted to slander God's character. Did God really say, can you really trust him with this? Like, why wouldn't he want you to eat from this one tree? It doesn't make any sense. And money says the same thing. Hey, listen, if, if you've got me, you can count me and you can taste me and you can touch me. You can't taste it, but you can count him and you can see it and you can hold it. And then you don't have to trust in one that you can't see and one that you can't hold. It's the temptation of money. And even in the midst of economic uncertainty, I think money continues to try to seduce us. And, and there's some behaviors. And this is what I want you to do. I, want you to, I don't want you trying to decide kind of independently of your behavior. Am I being seduced by money to place my faith and my trust in it versus Jesus? What I want you to do is look at your behaviors. If your behaviors reveal your heart, I want you to look at what you're doing. So we're in a time of uncertainty. Uncertainty breeds fear. That's what comes out of uncertainty. We don't know what's going to happen, so that makes us afraid. And so specifically, we can be afraid around, about economics. What's going to happen with us financially? And that can lead to several behaviors. Hoarding is one. I mentioned how generous you guys have been, so I'm thinking that's not a huge issue right now. But maybe it is for some of you. Hoarding is just holding on to what you have because you're afraid you won't have enough for tomorrow. That's what hoarding is. When we think of hoarding, we think of somebody with piles of money, but it's really, it's just holding tightly to what you have, whether you feel like it's a pile of money or not. Holding tightly to that because you don't trust that God's going to provide for you again tomorrow. So that's hoarding again, based on the offerings the past few weeks, it seems like a lot of you guys are doing great in terms of resisting that. Other ways that money kind of lures us in or other behaviors that would allow us to know, hey, I'm being seduced, is worry. Again, fear, fear brings on fret. Fear begets fretting within us. Matthew 6, don't worry, but that for many of us is a struggle. It's interesting that that's a command and that can feel harsh to us. How can I stop worrying? The fact that it's a command means that we can. And Jesus addresses it specifically to the necessities of life, what we're going to eat and what we're going to wear. And don't hear that as condemnation, but hear that as there, there's an opportunity for deliverance there. You don't have to worry about those things. You can be set free from those things and don't believe the lie from money that says you can be set free from worrying about those things once you get enough in the bank. That's the lie of money. If you're following money, you'll never have enough. If she's seduced you, you're never going to have enough to not worry. The key to not worrying is recognizing you have a father in heaven who's promised to take care of you. Again, he uses many means. He uses work. 
as one of the ways he takes care of us. Absolutely, the body is one of the ways that he takes care of us. Sometimes he takes care of us by showing us what we truly need versus what we just think we need. There's all kinds of means. But ultimately for us, it's who am I trusting in? Am I trusting God to give me my daily bread? Or am I trusting in money to give me my daily bread? If you're worrying, and again, don't hear this as condemnation. The last thing you need is burning coals heaped on your head. But if you're worrying, then most likely you're not trusting the Father. And that's, a, that's just allow that to be a gift to you. To say this is revealing an area of my heart where I've begun to put some of my trust. I'm leaning somewhat on money and not fully on Jesus. Another thing that we do when we're stressed is we lash out. Kind of our fuse gets shorter. We wind up, we're more irritable, we're kind of grouchy. Um, we, we don't have as much patience for other people. That's just one of the results of kind of living in a stressful time. And if you find yourself lashing out again, see that in a sense as a gift. See that as an opportunity to say, well, what's, like, what's going on with me? Why am I acting this way? Again, most likely it's because you're under stress. So then again, a step back, what's the source of this? Is it because I'm worried about our finances or my finances? Is that where this, allow the fact that you're, don't just write it off to the circumstances in terms of, you know, I just hadn't had enough alone time or, you know, what, they didn't have peanut butter at the grocery store. Just like genuinely step back and say, that's, what is that? Where did that outburst come from? That response was way disproportionate to the, to the action. So what is that, what's going on in here? It could be that you're worried about your financial future. Could be an indication. The last thing I'd say, and we'll be done, another thing that when we're stressed, some of us act out. We don't lash out, but we act out. We don't like the, the, the tension of living in stress. We're, it becomes very, it's difficult to live in that tension. And so we look for relief. And we look for relief often through sinful avenues. It can look like drinking. It can look like pornography. It can look just like withdrawing from life and responsibility. Just binging, binge watching a show. Just kind of shutting down to your responsibilities and to your relationships. If you're doing those things, again, see that as a warning sign. All right, so I'm stressed and this is how I'm dealing with the stress is I'm acting out in these ways. I'm eating a, whatever the stereotype is, a, pound, a pint of ice cream. Whatever the deal is, I'm doing that. So what is that saying about the condition of my heart? I'm under stress, and so where am I putting my faith, and where am I putting my trust? It could very well be that you're putting it in mammon, and right now that's shaky ground. We all know that's shaky ground. It's always shaky. But in times like this, we're allowed to see that it is. That's part of the, how the Lord, I think, can work through this time is to show us where we're placing our trust. And so one of the things for us to look at is why am I feeling stressed? And again, don't hear that as condemnation, but as an opportunity to say, Holy Spirit, search me and show me if I'm putting weight on something, on anything other than Jesus. I don't want to do that. Nothing else is a rock. He's it. He's the only one that can hold up under the weight of my life. So let's take a minute and pray as we wrap up.
chapter 17 is difficult. I want to say it's the last difficult chapter. That's probably not true. I don't want you to get lost in horns and heads and prostitutes. What I want you trying to pull out is, what does this say to me? What is my responsibility in terms of faithfulness to the Lord? And the thing I would encourage you to grab onto the most, Babylon is a city of great wealth. That's what hits us and that's what gets in our kitchen. We're a people of great wealth. Wealth in and of itself is not a sin. But I believe in where we live, money is the chief rival to Jesus. It's the thing that whispers to us the loudest and the most persistently. Trust me, I'll take care of you. So I want you to think through some of what's coming out of you. Are you hoarding? Are you fretting? Are you lashing out? Are you acting out? Rather than just focusing on those behaviors and trying to deal with them, see those things as warning signs. What we do comes out of what's in us. So say, this is what's coming out of me. So what is that saying about what's in me? And it very well could be that what's in you is some level of trust in your paycheck and in what you have in the bank. And the fact that that's being challenged and shaken right now. It's squeezing you and it's upsetting you. So if that's you again, don't hear condemnation Don't hear, I shouldn't fall for that. Think about, it's in the, I think it's King James uses the word ma'am and the NIV uses money. There's a spiritual power behind it. That's why I like that word mammon. When we think money, most of us think bills and coins. When Jesus is talking, he's talking about a spiritual power behind the bills and the coins. That's what, calls out to us. And mammon's really good. Really, really good. That seduction. So don't beat yourself up. Just recognize this is an opportunity to repent and to put your faith and your trust again in Jesus. To put your feet again solidly on the rock. It's the only safe place for you. So I'm going to pray and we'll be done. God, I pray that through the wildness of Revelation 17, I pray that you would speak very clearly to every heart. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would search us and that you would know us. That you would Reveal to us any offensive ways in our heart. If we're placing any of our trust on something as fleeting as money, would you show us? Would you show us? 
If you sense conviction, so um, that may feel kind of like almost like a pit in your stomach, that's, that could be conviction. If you're wanting to kind of get up and leave, that's probably conviction. And if you're justifying, if you're trying, if you're, if you to yourself or you're saying all the reasons why this doesn't apply, then you're probably trying to avoid conviction. So don't do that. It's a gift from the Lord. And so if you're feeling convicted, what I want you to do and encourage you to do is, is to repent. God, I confess I'm doing that. I didn't even know I was doing it. I thought I was doing a great job. I didn't think that I was placing trust in money. I give and I try to be generous. I'm not checking the stock market every day. I didn't realize it. But money got its claws in me. So thank you for showing me that. And I agree with you. I'm not going to fight you. I'm just going to agree with you on that. And I pray. Moving forward, I want to put all of my faith, I want to put all of my trust in you. I want to acknowledge that you're the source of provision. You use lots of means, but you're the ultimate source. That you're the one that gives me daily bread. You're the one that cares for me. And I put my faith and my trust in you. I pray to serve you only and not to give one ounce of my loyalty and allegiance to money. I pray that if there's any place in my heart where I'm cultivating the love of money, where I've become greedy or covetous, I pray that you'd pull that out of me. Whether I have a lot or I have a little, I want to live contentedly before you. And God, my prayer for every one of us we live in such an affluent culture. And even as that's being shaken and even as that's being rocked, we're still incredibly wealthy. God, I thank you for the ways you take care of us. I thank you for the opportunities that you give us to be generous. I'm, I'm thankful for the, all of the, the luxuries that we have. But God, I pray that in the midst of all of that, none of us fall prey to the temptations of mammon. That all of our hearts would be fully resting, fully trusting in you and in you alone. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you guys have a great week and we'll, uh, we'll circle back again next Sunday.